0: Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Our reading from the Bible this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 through 32. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all of the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. A few moments ago you had an opportunity to lift up the name or names of those who have gone before you on this week of All Saints Day. It's a reminder that every one of us here in this space at some point will be gone and there will be those who come after us to name our names in this space. There's a story about two men, Sam and Mo, who have been best friends their whole lives, and Sam is sadly dying. And so Mo comes to visit him, and Mo says to Sam, Sam, we have been friends our entire lives, and so I just have one uh, favor of you to ask, and that is uh, when you pass on, you must find some way to report back to me about whether or not there is baseball in heaven. And from his deathbed, Sam says, Mo, we've been friends all this time, and this one favor I will do for you. And then sadly, just like that, Sam dies. A few nights later, Mo is sound asleep. It's midnight, and he's awakened by the voice. Mo, wake up. It's me, Sam. And Mo says, is that you, Sam? Where are you? And Sam says, I'm in heaven, and I've come to give you good news and bad news. And Mo says, give me the good news first. Sam says, the good news is there really is baseball in heaven. And the bad news is you're scheduled to pitch on Tuesday. (laughs) So keep your arm in shape. You never know when you'll be on the mound. This past Tuesday, On what was called All Saints Day, we gathered in the chapel and named some names. We lifted up those uh, in that chapel service that have, in their living days, have, have touched our lives and in their dying have left some legacy behind for us. And perhaps either on Tuesday or throughout the week or today, you named a person or two whom you have lost over this last year. And yet who, in some inexplicable way, seems to remain with you in spirit. And you can feel them cheering you on and pushing you and nudging you and pulling you and prodding you and sometimes kicking you to be your best self, to do your best work, to live your best life and to give your best self in love to the world. And we call these people saints, but we don't mean saints with the big S, Uh, as in St. Francis or St. Patrick or St. Joan of Arc. What we're talking about here are those saints with the little S, those who may never have made the headlines for what they had accomplished in the world, those whose likeness may never ever be enshrined in some cathedral or in a limestone monument. But those who played some part and contributed a verse to the great, powerful play that still goes on today. And why do we take a moment to name them, like publicly, vocally? The writer Mike Eagleton uh, Eagleman says that, that every one of us actually dies three deaths. And the first death is when this mortal body of ours ceases to function. And the second death is when this body of ours is consigned to the earth and buried. And the third death is that moment sometime in the future when our name is spoken for the last time. And so by speaking those names, we we keep a part of them alive in us and in the world around us. And in keeping them a part of uh, a part of them alive in us. We we remember that in some big or small way we are alive because of them. They have enlarged our souls and our hearts and our minds and our lives. They have expanded our futures and our potential. And this is important because in our culture we tend today to remember only those who do the big things, those who make sweeping sacrifices those who, whose contribution comes in one singular ultimate act. And we can think of those, the heralds who lead us in marches of millions of people or the martyrs who die for their faith or for some noble cause or the heroes who perform some valiant deed for which our flags will fly at half-mast. And such saints are so Worthy of our reverence and our gratitude. Years ago, I still remember my uncle was posthumously awarded the Silver Star for giving his life to save a medic in Vietnam. And as our, gather, our family gathered at Camp Pendleton and, in San Diego, I remember specifically thinking about how important these moments are to remember and honor those who make important, dramatic, ultimate sacrifices. They're rare. But for most of us, our contribution will not come all at once. It'll come little by little over a whole lifetime. Um, over these many years that we are given to live, we, we, we probably won't ever really know the impact that we will have on someone or on this world. Uh, because over the course of our lives, those little contributions will, will, will feel small. I mean, maybe most of us would like to write the check for a million dollars and be done with our contribution in life. But most of us every day are dropping nickels and dimes and quarters and dollar bills here and there. And all those over time add up, metaphorically speaking. Little things, acts so small and seemingly insignificant become really big things over time. In one of his shortest parables that he ever gave, Jesus speaks about the power and potential of a mustard seed. And he says, it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it grows, it becomes the greatest of shrubs so that the birds of the air will come and make their nests in it. Little things becoming big things. And maybe you're thinking, is this really how it works? Some of the parables that Jesus tells, they grab our attention because they're of ordinary things, uh, ordinary people, like wedding guests who show up for a party or farmers who build barns or farmers who sow seeds. Um, There's also sometimes these moments that When he tells stories, our attention is is grabbed in ways that uh, surprise us because the outcomes don't quite add up. I mean, think about some of these parables that Jesus tells. Maybe you've heard about the one about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, a flock, and, and one of them wanders off and gets lost. And everyone in the day of Jesus who heard that parable would have said to themselves, well, that poor sheep is a goner. Because there is no farm, no shepherd in his right mind or her right mind who would leave the 99 to go get that one lost sheep. And yet Jesus tells the story at the end that this is exactly what the shepherd does. And not only that, but when he finds it, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that never got lost to begin with. And if we really listen to that story, we think... Really? No. There's that other story about a farmer who plants good seeds in his perfectly tilled fields. After he plants the seeds, he goes home, and while he's asleep, some good-for-nothing prankster goes into his field and plants bad seeds, weeds, right alongside the good seeds. And we all know this will have devastating consequences now, there's no way you'll ever be able to harvest any good wheat from that field with all those invasive greedy weeds strangling out the roots of all the good plants but when the farmer's servants come to report to him what has happened, what does he say it's okay let it all grow together we'll take care of it at harvest time really And Jesus says, yeah, really? And along the way, between all these parables that he tells, he throws in some really crazy teachings. Uh, Blessed are the poor and the persecuted and the meek and the mourning. And we say, wait, what? Jesus, there is nothing about any of those experiences in life that feel like a blessing. And Jesus says, yeah, and... Also, um, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you when you say, what? Have you seen this world? And Jesus says, and by the way, also, while you're at it, love your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you. Even give the shirt off your back if you have to. And we say, are you out of your mind? This is not the way the world works. And Jesus says, no, I I wasn't saying this is how the world works. I'm just saying this is how we're going to do business from now on around here. We are going to live as if the reign of God, the rule of God, has come upon the earth. Jesus called it, in many ways, the reign of God. It's often translated as the kingdom of God. But remember, when this original manuscript was translated into English, it was during kingly times. And so we often translate this word basileu in the Greek as kingdom. It's a bad translation. It's often translated as kingdom of God. But Jesus had no concept of God as a king or a monarch And he had no concept of the reign of God as any spatially defined monarchy. What's translated often as kingdom of God was what Jesus and all the ancient prophets together often described as shalom. This collective experience of well-being and genuine peace that God from the very beginning of time has envisioned for all of creation and for Jesus, the kingdom of God was more like a kingdom. Just drop the G. A kingdom where a kinship is the rule and where we treat each other, even the other, as family. And all the prophets said that when the kingdom will come is only when we begin to hammer our swords into plowshares and our spears into gardening tools when we start speaking the truth and stop telling untruths and lies, when we receive God's Spirit into our very flesh and we change our ways and we share our bread with the hungry and we set a table and sit down with our enemies. He called that kinship, shalom. We call it today the kingdom of God. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, when we look at the state of the world right now, You're thinking, well, we're super close. (laughs) Is it just me or does a kingdom of God seem absolutely impossible sometimes? The problems are so big and we are so very small. And change, real change, it takes so long. And yet Jesus walks in and says, well, that's why I said it's like the mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, but it grows into the tallest of trees so that the birds can make their nests in it. And he looks at us and says, so why are you playing so small right now? Every one of us in this room has to plant seeds and cultivate the soil and weed and water it. This requires commitment. It requires hard work, faithful attention, holy and deep devotion but jesus also suggests here that it requires it requires a trust in the wonderful mystery of growth about which we can sometimes do nothing but wait and wonder with wonder and anticipation for what god is doing even when we can't see it even with our simplest of acts There's a word for this kind of trust in God's future. It's not a biblical word, but it's a word that I heard a preacher use many years ago that I had never heard before, and it's always served to inspire me. That word is perspicacity. It's a big mouthful. Perspicacity, it means a keenness of insight, a a clarity of vision that provides a, a deep understanding of things. It's the rare ability to discern or envision what's going on beneath the surface, something that others may not be able to see. Perspicacity, and it's what the mustard seed farmer has. It's understanding that, that there's some hidden indiscernible power in the seed that is you. That over a long enough timeline has the capacity to actually impact the world. Maybe this is why in the end, what a saint really is, is a perspicacious person who acts over the course of their life with, with this fundamental belief that what they do today, these little tiny seeds they plant will, will lead to something like you, like this church, like the kingdom. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. It's made up of people who believe and act on a promise. Someone plants a seed in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, comes about by some mysterious power. We all do this, we all know this. You might go tutor a child at East Elementary by reading a book. You might make sandwiches in our hallways every Sunday and deliver them to Civic Center Park for our hungry siblings. You might stay after class if you're a teacher and tutor a child because you know just a little bit more might go a long way. You might lift a hammer at a Habitat for Humanity build site. You might go downstairs and teach Sunday school or mentor a child in confirmation. Maybe you've helped to furnish an apartment for one of our homeless mothers at Joshua Station. Maybe you've provided assistance to our Afghan family that we've adopted. And you do that because you think to yourself, You just never know. It might lead to something great. And then Jesus says, no, you do know. It will lead to something great because I promise you, this is how the kingdom of God works. You plant the seeds, things grow. And sometimes that seed is just a dream, a dream of a better world, a dream of well-being, shalom. And sometimes that dream has to take root and grow right alongside deep obstacles and hurdles, overwhelming odds. Perspicacity is tenacious. Perspicacity knows all the odds and then still decides to act anyway. The kingdom and the prophets, uh, Jesus himself said that the kingdom of God, the peace and well-being grows right alongside the bad stuff. Because the kingdom is a fragile, single, tiny seed. And it has to contend in this world with hatred and violence and racism and bigotry, which also produces its own deadly fruit. Just look at the news this last week. Kanye West's anti-Semitic remarks that impact millions of people a violent attack on an elected official's spouse in San Francisco, the atrocities committed by Roman soldier, or Russian soldiers against Ukrainian citizens. And without perspicacity, we might watch the evening news and think that <clears throat> hatred and violence have won. But the dream of the kingdom, shalom, kinship, always believes and never gives up on the dream that compassion and justice... And fairness, it won't die. There's a place for it in our world. Uh, I read this week some remarks spoken by the great, late Elie Wiesel. As you know or may not know, Elie Wiesel survived the concentration camps of both Auschwitz and Buchenwald. He went on to teach and write books and he won a Nobel Peace Prize for his perspicacious vision of the world. And even at Buchenwald, the Jewish adults there that he was surrounded by, they they protected the children, about 900 of them. Even in Buchenwald, these adults were teaching these 900 kids illegally to never give up. They teach them to read and to do math Because they said, never give up on your vision to become adults and to be liberated. And even at Buchenwald, they planted seeds in the deadly, deathly ashes of a concentration camp. And Wiesel was there. He was 15 years old. In fact, his father died in the bunk below his. He was liberated in 1945, but he returned to Buchenwald in 2009. To visit his father's grave and to speak openly about his own experiences right alongside the German prime minister, a stark contrast of how the world has changed. And in that speech, he imagined what he might tell his dead father about how the world had changed since the days of the Holocaust. And in that speech, he spoke of a world in which people would stop waging war and stop hating each other and, and stop otherizing each other. But he also said, have we really learned the lessons of the Holocaust? He was liberated on April 11th, 1945, and he said when he was with all these other young Jews, he said we had every right to give up on the world, to give up on our culture and our religion, to to give up on, on everything because of what we had gone through. But he said they refused to give up on that, to say, they said no to this, And so he stands up in front of all these people and he speaks. He speaks about a vision in which there would be no more war again. A vision in which people would not conquer other people's minds or territories or aspirations. Where there would be no more racism. He said they all had a, a right to give up on that. But they chose a different way. In the end he said will the world ever learn? He said only if they understand that the time has come, that it is enough, he said. It's enough to go to cemeteries. It's enough to to weep oceans. It's enough. He said there must come a moment when we bring people together. And somewhere, somewhere along the way, someone somehow planted a seed in your heart. I bet they did. That's why you're here. A seed of a dream that said you can make your contribution to the kingdom of God. As you think about your own contribution in creating shalom and kingdom, think about these three things. First, little things become big things in the kingdom of God. There's a hidden indiscernible power in you that over a long enough timeline has the capacity to change the world. Perspicacity is knowing the odds and acting in spite of them